Let's turn together, please, to Acts chapter 3. We are continuing now, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. We chose this book, the elders did, for our church, that we might be encouraged with what Jesus continued to do and teach in this early church after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and how this motivated and transformed his followers, the early church, to worship him and make him known that other worshipers might be made all around the known world. It's relevant for us not merely because it is true history, but it is relevant for us for it is our story too. Jesus is still alive and he is still at work in and among us. Furthermore, we have the privilege and responsibility if Jesus is the only hope of life and if he indeed still is active and working, we have the privilege and responsibility of making him known all around the world. So the mandate that Jesus has left for the church is that we are to go make disciples all over the world. Personally, through proclamation, and even distantly by the way that we dispense our resources that others might do it. But we will never do so. We will never engage in mission the mandate of Jesus to make disciples, if we are not gripped by what this early church was gripped by. We finished chapter 2 last week and found that the initial 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost led to more and more converts. Day by day, Luke says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, people were being saved. And there was unmistakable transformation that took place in this early church. They were convinced that Jesus, the risen Lord, was at work among his people, these early converts. And it was unmistakable. And I say to you that Acts, which is the record of the mission of the early church, will not be something we care about, will not be something that we engage in unless we are in awe of Jesus and unless we love Jesus. And so it is my hope that as we work through Acts chapter 3 today that at least to some degree your faith and your affections will be rekindled for Jesus, our Savior. So let's read together these words of life from Acts chapter 3. This is the word of God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, 
to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Astounded. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for rest restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken. From Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Verse 15, Peter, this former coward and denier of Jesus, Peter here calls Jesus the author of life. 
the one who originates life, the one who grants life. This, in so many ways, is the hub of this chapter. It's the central idea of this chapter. That Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the author of life. And despite the ignorant, yet sinful actions of these people, the covenant people of God who should have known better, despite their actions to strike his life down, to take it from him, it didn't work. And he alone was the one who could bring them back to life. He had transformed Peter from a denier, from a coward, and given him life. And now through the lips of this transformed man, flesh and blood like us, the message of life went forth. And so today, let's talk about this author of life. There are a few other places in the New Testament, three more to be exact, where Jesus is called the author, sometimes the leader of life. It's the same original word in Greek. In Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, Luke records for us, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Once again, the guilt of these people is not excused. And yet, God exalted him at his right hand as leader. Same word that is translated author in Acts chapter 3. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The irony here is, though they tried to strike his life down, he is the one who, through his life being taken, was brought back to life and granted them life. We are reminded of what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, or that which is recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 1, that Through Jesus, God made all things. He is the source of all life. And as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, in him all things hold together. The irony, of course, is that these humans who were given life by him thought they could undo him. And it was through his death and resurrection that he has begun to overcome all the effects of death, sin's curse. So from the beginning, when you see life populating this planet, it is because Jesus, the agent of life, made it, spoke it into existence. And from the beginning, he has sustained it. This means that every breath of every living organism, every changing of every season of every year that has passed, all things 
have been created by Jesus and are held together by Jesus. But for our story, even more amazing to us and more precious to us than the creation of all living things is that he took our dead hearts and the condemnation that we deserved and turned it around and has granted us the hope of eternal life. He is the author of life from beginning to end, physical and spiritual. And one day he will return, as Peter says in Acts chapter 3, and bring everything back to life, particularly those who trust him for life. A couple more places in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The word founder here in Hebrews chapter 2 is the same word that we find in Acts 3 and Acts 5. Jesus is the author, the leader, the founder of life. And in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 2. Therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the leader, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You'll see as you look through each of these four passages that it is, there is an unmistakable connection between Jesus being leader, founder, author, and his death and resurrection. Jesus, through whom everything was made, has brought us back to life through his death and resurrection. This means that our faith is dependent on him. It is objective. We are not left to ourselves. And so I say to you that the primary idea of Acts chapter 3 is that Jesus is the author of life. You may say, so what? Well, we see the effects that this had on the early church. And we must draw implications from this for the way that we worship God today. So first of all, in verses 1 through 10, because we know that Jesus is the author of life, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, we can trust him to overcome all of the sad effects of the fall. You see this in various ways in these first ten verses. I've already suggested to you that perhaps the first thing that we see is that Peter, who disappointed so many times in the Gospels, and thank God that he does not cover up the warts of all of his followers, for in cowardly Peter and brash, impetuous Peter, Sometimes strong, sometimes failing, sometimes hoping, sometimes trusting only in himself. We see ourselves. 
but we see in Peter a pattern. What faith does. He who had been a coward, he who had failed so miserably at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, stands up and puts his life on the line. Not because suddenly he had found some inner strength or wasn't some sort of inner light that began to flicker a bit more brightly. He was in awe of Jesus. He was in love with Jesus. And perhaps even more importantly, he knew he was loved by Jesus. And this faith, this transformation in character persists now into Acts chapter 3. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, as we see in Acts chapter 1, wanted the kingdom to be restored to Israel. In fact, up until the point that Jesus ascends back into heaven, they still didn't quite understand what the kingdom of God was all about. Jesus spent a bit over a month with the apostles after his resurrection, before he ascended back into heaven, speaking to them about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1. And even still, they didn't quite get it. As we know from the Gospels, Jesus often did teaching with his inner circle in a Q&A kind of way. It wasn't as though he just taught them and disappeared. He let them ask questions. There would have been plenty of time for them to understand the kingdom of God. The problem was not in Jesus' teaching. The problem was in the apostles, that they wanted something different. They wanted to shape the Messiah after their own desires. They wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. They wanted the kingdom to be something that would vindicate them. You see this in the Gospels whenever they want places of preeminence and prominence in the kingdom. They want to be vindicated for having followed Jesus and for the benefits to come to them. But by Acts chapter 3, you begin to see that they're getting over that a bit. Jesus has not yet returned weeks later. The angels had promised that he would return. What did the apostles think? What did they tell these thousands of followers? He's coming back. Maybe really soon. But in the meantime, especially as each day went by, they grew accustomed to the fact That the kingdom of God was not about vindication. The kingdom of God was not primarily about what would derive to them, what they would gain from it. The kingdom of God was about their own restoration and about the message of restoration for all of their countrymen. And then as we will find as we work through the book of Acts, even beyond. Peter and John hadn't gotten wealthy It's interesting as you consider the course of evangelical progress here in our country over the past number of decades, and as you see it spreading in the global south, places that I've had the privilege of visiting a number of times, so much of what passes as gospel transformation, as the spread of the kingdom of God, is little more than just progress and prosperity, the hope of wealth. 
not long ago, whenever I was in Africa, in Kenya specifically, one of the really well-known televangelists from the United States was getting ready to come, and he was going to sell out a stadium, which would, of course, be attended by most of the poor people from the slums in Nairobi, Kenya, where they would pay quite a bit of money, perhaps as much as a month's wages, just to go hear him and hope that having put a little bit of seed money into this endeavor, they would be blessed. If you travel up and down the streets of the awful and sad slums of Nairobi, Kenya, you will see church after church after church after church. On Sundays, you will see people wearing strange robes and strange hats going to their individual little cultish churches, which are primarily marked by one thing. God can make you wealthy. And that's incredibly appealing to poor people. It's no less true here in our country. Follow Jesus and he'll give you all you want. He'll give you riches. He'll make your life better. You can have your best life now. The apostles were getting over that by this point. They were being weaned of those false expectations. You see them by this point realizing that perhaps they wouldn't be vindicated in this life for having followed Jesus. That they perhaps would not be made princes or dukes or earls or something like that. Peter looks at this man and says, I don't have anything monetary to give you. Because Jesus has transformed me, you can be transformed as well. And so he speaks to him, and this man, fixing his gaze on Peter and John, this man who had never walked before, lame from birth, is transformed in an instant. This is not a coach going out onto the football field where a player is writhing in pain and saying, suck it up, get up, and keep playing. That's not what Peter and John are doing here. They're not making a guy toughen up a bit. They're not tricking him mentally. This is a guy who had never walked. He had no muscle tone. He had never learned how to walk. This is quite a miracle if you think about it. It's easy for us to allow our eyes to glaze over as we glide over these pages and miss what's going on here. But here you have a guy who had never learned how to walk and did not have the physical anatomical ability to walk. And here are these two poor fishermen from Galilee who gaze at him and tell him to get up and he does think about this guy's life for some time now we don't know how long but for some time now decades this guy had made it his practice to go to one of the gates of the temple and hope that people would give him an offering a merciful alm, so that he could have enough to eat. You can't walk, you can't work, you can't eat. 
that was this guy's existence. He was probably equal parts fear, because if people didn't come through for him and his begging, he would not eat. He was probably equal parts fear and equal parts resignation, hopeless. And for him, this was just another day. And so friends of his took him to this gate, ironically called beautiful. Life was not beautiful for him. And unbeknownst to him, the followers of Jesus, the curse-reverser, were going to encounter him that day. He wanted money that made sense to him. It would, it would calm his fears for a day. It would perhaps comfort him a bit from his hopelessness. But he didn't get that. His life was transformed. And in this story, we find that Jesus can be trusted to overcome all of the sad effects of the fall. Physical malady, sad effect of the fall. Mental anguish, sad effect of the fall. War, tragic effect of the fall. Racism, ugly effect of the fall. Fear, hopelessness, pride, struggle, relational disappointment. These and countless other things are the sad effects of the fall. And Jesus, who has now ascended to heaven, is transforming his own followers. They are no longer hoping in personal vindication or wealth that will accrue to them. Instead, they're hoping in Jesus alone. They were in awe of him. They were in love with him. They knew they were loved by him, and they take this good news to the people, and they take this one who is fearful and hopeless, and because of their faith in Jesus, this man is transformed. Jesus, who is the giver of life. Jesus, who gave life in the beginning and restores life through his death and resurrection, he can be trusted to overcome all of the sad effects of the fall. You live in this world long enough, you realize that it can be a relatively disappointing place. Some of our hopes and dreams come true. A lot of them don't. If adulthood is anything, it's a constant reminder that we are not strong enough, we are not good enough, we are not capable enough. And as the followers of Jesus, this can be incredibly disappointing, but also life-giving because we realize that Jesus is the one who can give us life and overcome all of these sad effects of the fall. And if adult is anything, it's, it's realizing that we are not strong enough, but Jesus is. And Jesus in his love, not in malevolence, not in meanness, Jesus in his love is doing that in us. It's hard for us to see most days. Most days we get up, struggle out of bed, wolf some breakfast down, do all the things we need to do for the day for our family and for our employer, take care of the kids, get them in bed, and do it again the next day. Most days are relatively mundane. 
There are occasional days here and there that stand out as highlights. But the course of our lives is essentially Jesus teaching us as his followers that we are not strong enough, that this life can and is incredibly disappointing in so many ways, that he is overcoming all of the sad effects of the fall in us. So what occupies your mind this morning? What are you worried about? Now, there are a few oddballs out there who aren't worried about anything. You people are the crazy ones. Because the rest of us, if we're being honest, are fearful about a lot of things. There's an 80-hour work week in front of us. We're going to get in our minivan and drive home and not speak to our spouse in any meaningful way, though we try to keep up appearances for the kids. We're going to go to a job tomorrow that we can't stand. We're going to look for a job tomorrow that has not yet come. We're going to go get a doctor's diagnosis that we don't know what it will be. We're going to live for a couple of more years, if not more, under an administration that we don't like. Speaking very high level here. I'm not giving any, away anything, I think. Whatever your fears are, whatever they might be, personal, societal, occupational, marital, whatever they might be, Jesus is the only one who can give you hope. This man wasn't even expecting it. But he encountered some of Jesus' followers who had begun in their own journey to work this out by faith. So whatever the sad effects of the fall are for you today, whatever is occupying your mind today, making it hard even to listen today, Jesus is at work in you. You can trust him. We'll talk about how to practically apply this a bit at the end. Jesus is the author of your life. If you have trusted Jesus, the one who gave you life organically in the beginning, has brought you back to life spiritually, and one day will bring this to completion, you can trust him. I say to those of you who perhaps, who have not yet trusted Jesus, who have worked for decades to make life work on your own and yet have not overcome the fear in any meaningful sense instead perhaps have been overcome by it more and more as life has gone on Jesus is the only one who can deal with this he can overcome your addictions he can overcome your fears and your disappointments and your past he can grant you life let's turn together to John chapter 9 good parallel story for us in, Acts, in John chapter 9. We won't take time to read the whole lengthy chapter, but I do want to hit a couple of highlights, and it helps us understand a bit of what's going on in Acts chapter 3. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They thought they were very clever and insightful in their question. As Jesus often did, he turned it around. Verse 3, he answers, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, though of course they did, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We, not just me, but we, must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Ironic, because there was no light that penetrated this man's eyes and made his life any better. He couldn't see the light. But the light of the world, having said these things, verse 6, spits on the ground, makes mud with the saliva, and anoints the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And his neighbors hear about it, and they're amazed. And the Pharisees, verse 13, find out about it, and mostly are just mad. They call his parents in. They confirm that, indeed, this guy had been born blind. It wasn't a sham. The leaders, verse 24, call this man in and say, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. How does he respond to these leaders? Verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Verse 35, Jesus comes to the man privately, and he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This man born blind who now sees light says, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. This transformed man says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This man was a sinner. His parents were sinners. But that's not why he was blind. He was blind because of the effects of the fall, and so that... The overcoming of the effects of the fall in him, his blindness, might give glory to God. And through this, Jesus could talk and make this point. I am the light of the world. If people will trust me, they can be brought back to life. And if they reject me, their guilt remains. Why was this man born lame? Well, I think it's because of the same reason that we see in John chapter 9. This man in Acts chapter 3 was born lame so that he could encounter Peter and John, who were convinced, who were in awe of Jesus, who loved Jesus and were loved by Jesus, that the effects of the fall could be overcome in him. And that's what happened. Jesus is the author of life, the originator of life, both originally and more importantly for our story, through his death and resurrection, spiritually. He's brought us from death to life. And we can trust him to overcome all the sad effects of the fall. But not only this, verses 11 through 26, we can trust him to rescue us from sin's penalty and give us eternal life. This is Peter's sermon. The miracle gave him opportunity to preach a sermon. This is why most of what passes for miracles and the preaching of most TV evangelists is such a sham. There is almost zero emphasis on the fact that people are sinful and need spiritual restoration. The attention is on the guy in the white suit who is pushing people over and healing them of 
lame knees and bum shoulders and tumors. It's not on Jesus, who not only can take away those maladies, but can, more importantly, deal with our biggest malady, and that is that we have evil, wicked hearts that are deserving of death, and Jesus alone can rescue us and bring us back to life. He can take the dead and resurrect them to life. As a little caveat, this does not mean that miracles still can't happen. I'm in full confidence that they do every single day. I suppose that perhaps because a nation like ours for so many centuries now has had access to the Word of God, both physically because we have copies of the Bible and because we have access to essentially biblical teaching, I would say that primarily because we have access to the Word of God, there has been a diminishing of the miraculous. In the early church, the miraculous happened to draw attention to Jesus, to his good news. The attention was not to the miracle itself. There are credible stories of like-minded believers who go into dark places still today around the world, places where there is not access to the Bible, either physically because there are no Bibles or the Bible has not been translated into many people groups' languages, much less been taught carefully and faithfully. And in such places, the miraculous often does happen. Jesus from heaven still giving witness to the fact that he alone can bring people back to life. So in case you're wondering, as a bit of a caveat, the miraculous can happen, and I believe still does happen. In our experience, though, because we have had for now centuries in our country consistent access to the word, God primarily instructs us and encourages our faith through the word, not primarily through the miraculous. That's why we come to church to hear preaching. That's why we gather in our small groups to study the Word together. It's why we should, on balance, be in the Word consistently. Because it is through the Word that Jesus transforms us, convincing us that the sad effects of the fall can and will be undone in us. And through the Word convinces us that He alone can bring us back to life. That He alone can take away our condemnation and give us life. And that's what verses 11 through 26 are about. Peter preaches a sermon about life. He reminds them that they were complicit. They were guilty of the worst crime ever committed. That's essentially what he's saying to them. That took a lot of boldness. He who had denied Jesus three times at Jesus' arrest and trial now stands up in public and looks at them and says, you've committed the worst sin ever. You killed, verse 15, the author of life. What could they be charged with which was worse than that? But without even hesitating in verse 15, what does Peter say? God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay dead. Your heinous sin, your act of treachery, 
this pinnacle of wickedness. It's not the end of the story. God brought him back to life. And verse 16, in his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And then Peter lets him off the hook a little bit, verse 17, by saying, I know you acted in ignorance. I think what he's saying is you should have known better, but you didn't know everything. But, verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, the reason you missed it is because you wanted a Messiah of glory. But instead, a suffering Messiah was sent. But this should not have been a surprise because God said that's the way it would be. We want glory because we think highly of ourselves. We think we deserve it. All the while not recognizing that we have a disease. It's called sin and it separates us from God. And we deserve condemnation. And that is exactly why Jesus sent a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. One who would become our substitute. One who would take the wrath of God that we deserved. The prophets foretold it. God fulfilled it. What should they do? Therefore, verse 19, repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out. The biggest problem humanity has is not lameness. The biggest problem humanity has is not poverty. The biggest problem humanity has is rebellion against God. And Jesus, who can make all the sad effects of the fall come untrue, the best thing he can do is cause you to pass from death to life. He took your condemnation. He took the judgment of God so that you might have life. And what's our expectation in the end? Times are refreshing, verse 20. Because, verse 21, he's coming back. And then everything will be made new. What happens if you reject him? This one who is coming back, the one who alone can make you new. No one else can. If you reject him, verse 23, you'll be destroyed. But Jesus has been sent by God as a merciful gift. And so Peter reminds his fellow countrymen, verse 25, they were the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant, God's promises to his people. And through them and in them, God wanted to bless the world. That was the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. God brings Abraham out into the night and tells him to look up in the sky and says, if you can number the stars, you'll be able to number your offspring. This man who was yet childless. And through one of those stars, I will bless the world. Paul makes it clear to us in the book of Galatians that one of those stars signified Jesus, the coming offspring of Abraham, through whom the world could be saved. And Peter now says to Abraham's children and to his fellow countrymen that that star had been born. And had lived a perfect life. And has laid his life down for his people. 
and had now come back to life and was in heaven dispensing life. And if these people would trust him, the promises of the covenant would come to them. And just like in John chapter 9, the miracle draws attention to the giver of life. He who is the light of the world. Those who reject him will be destroyed. And I say that with no happiness. It is a tragic, sad reality. But that need not be the end of the story. And Peter, who had been loved by Jesus and restored and transformed, proclaims with boldness that those who trust Jesus will be granted life since penalty can be removed and one day Jesus will return and make all of us perfectly new. How do we respond to all of this? First of all, we don't have to be paralyzed by fear. Jesus is bringing to life what was once dead. Let us feed on his promises and commune with him throughout the day. I've already suggested that most of us in one way or another are paralyzed by fear of various kinds. But if you have trusted Jesus, he's bringing life out of death. He's overcoming your sad effects. He's overcoming all the sad things that have happened to you. How do you deal with that? Because we have been granted access to his word, we must feed on his promises daily and commune with him. You've got to hear the promises. Those of you who've been Christians a long time know this to be true. You cannot live on the vapors of a sermon. You must feed on these promises consistently. You've got to fight false gospels. Those messages which hold out life and hope to you, but the only way you can push back against those false gospels, self-righteousness, self-help, the American dream, a better job, a perfect family, a perfect home, whatever the case may be, false gospels. The only way you can expose those hissing voices for what they are is by coming to the word and allowing the spirit to proclaim to you the promises of Jesus. You got to feed on it consistently. And those of us who've been Christians a long time know how quickly those voices dominate our thinking. They whisper in our ears, but they always, always underdeliver. How do you expose those voices for what they are? How do you hear from God and push back? You've got to be in his word. You've got to feed on his promises. And then you commune with him by talking to him. Jesus, I struggle with the sad effects of the fall that are still true in me. I struggle that I, with, with hiding from my spouse. I, I struggle with laziness. I struggle with lust. I struggle with fear. I'm paralyzed by it. But I know you're bringing me back to life. Help my unbelief. You don't have to be paralyzed by fear. Fight this by feeding on his promises and communing with him throughout the day. Secondly and lastly, we have the message of life for those trapped in sin's clutches. Jesus alone can rescue them. 
Let us proclaim this hope in word and deed. You see, it is not only us who are paralyzed by fear and who deal with the sad effects of sin in its various horrible ways. Our neighbors are too. People all around the world are too. But their jobs can't rescue them. Their doctors can't rescue them. Their therapists can't rescue them. Only Jesus can. How will they know if they don't hear? In so many ways, we gather as the people of God to be reminded of the promises of God. And then we deploy throughout the week as the people of God that through our lives and through our words, the good news of Jesus might be proclaimed. So I say very simply, who around you needs to know? Truthfully, most, right? How can you leverage your resources, though limited, of time and talent and treasure to make much of Jesus, to proclaim him as the curse reverser, as the restorer of life? Your neighbor needs to know, your coworker needs to know, your mom, your dad, your children. They need to know. These transformed disciples, in whom the sad effects of the fall had begun to be overcome, what was their response? They who had been loved by Jesus, the author of life, they went out in deed and in word and proclaimed the name of Jesus. Most of you, I guess all of you, don't get paid to do this. But neither did Peter and John, and yet they used what they knew, and they leveraged their resources, their lives, in word and deed to make Jesus known. So how should we respond to this author of life? By trusting him, not being paralyzed by fear, and by proclaiming him in word and deed. He is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 